Good morning. I, I am the aforementioned Dan Olson. And I'm one of the elders here at the church. And if this is your first time here, you have uh, an opportunity to hear from some of the leadership of the church from time to time. And that's, that's happening today. There's just a couple of things I want to do before I begin. The first is, hi, Mom. My parents listen to these sermons. And I really want to, to say to my mom and dad, thank you. Thank you for the spiritual legacy that you left me. They're still living, so they still have an impact on my life, but I, I am a product of their love for Christ. And I just want them to know how much I love them today. That was just spontaneous. That's not even in my notes. <laughs> the second thing is that I'm really kind of amazed at the willingness of all of you to be sitting so patiently and quietly, just ready to listen. We live in a world that's just filled with amazing sermons and wonderfully exciting stuff. You have relinquished control today to me by being here. And I want you to know that I take these opportunities very seriously and I want to proclaim God's word to you. And I appreciate your part in this somewhat mysterious process. But we do believe that God is able to take his word and apply it individually to each one of you that are here today. And so we're part of that process. Today I want to continue with the series that I began this summer on the person of Moses. So this morning we'll be reading from various parts of the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament and so it's really close to the front of your Bible. So if you have the desire to follow along and have never had that opportunity before, you'll find it the second book. And we're going to be reading in chapters like 5, 6, and 7, and some 12 as well. Anyway, we're going to focus today on some of the ways that Moses failed right after God called him to set his people free. Now, I probably should start off by saying that uh, we can all relate to failure. Uh, you can find fail videos on the Internet pretty easily, and they're almost always associated with America's funniest videos, right? People falling off of bikes, off of scooters, off of buildings, off of you name it, they fall off of it. They fall into water, onto the ground, into sand. It, it, it's pretty amazing. And we laugh because, like it or not, we have likely done something just like it. And I can think of a couple of times that that has happened to me and I quickly get up and look around to make sure that no one was watching. But it's definitely part of our lives. So I can think of two very specific times in my growing up years where I failed gloriously. And I don't mean falling down. Both of them happened in my high school years or early high school years and I can talk about them because the trauma is over. The first one happened when I was learning to drive. Now, the vehicle that our family had at that point in time 
was a 1962 Ford Falcon. All right. Ours was blue, but that's the car. The Ford Falcon is a little bit of a smaller vehicle, and it's known as one that has what's called three on the tree. It's a clutched vehicle, which means you have to push in the clutch, then move the gear to the gear you want to be in, and then let the clutch out. And it's like an H on the side of the column of the steering wheel. So the H, the, the bar across the middle, is the transition between the gears, and then you either pull in and down for first, or away and up for second, or away and down for third, and then reverse was up and in. <sighs> Did I mention a clutch? <laughs> oh yes, the clutch. You have to push that in and then let it out appropriately. So you can imagine that uh, the first of the two failures I'm telling you about has something to do with the clutch. So I have my learner's permit. We are at church, and I'm in front of all my friends, and Dad says, hey, do you want to drive home? Well, yeah. So I get in the driver's seat. I gingerly put in the clutch, push it up into reverse. We back out, and my friends are watching. They're standing on the sidewalk because this is a pretty big deal for me. And so we move forward from first, I put it up into second, and I pop the clutch. Does anybody here know what it means to pop a clutch? Well, if you don't, here's the result. <laughs> and so there I am, bouncing back and forth in the car with my family. My sisters are screaming in fear. My father is bellowing instructions. All right, well, that's unfair, Dad. You weren't probably bellowing instructions, but that's how I heard it. And my face turned several shades of red. But I did survive. The second failure involved a girl and not in that way, and no, not my wife, Julie. I didn't meet her until Bible college several years later. So I think I was probably a junior in high school, and the high school I went to, probably just like yours, they held dances on Friday night. Now, I had never gone to a dance, and the reason is I don't know how to dance. Well, I made the mistake of telling my sister about one of the girls in the school that I was interested in. And I probably mused out loud that, you know, it would be fun to take her to a dance. Well, my sister began to build my confidence. Oh, you could do it. She's going to just love spending time with you. You should... You. And this went on for probably half an hour. And I started to believe her. And she didn't just let it go. She went, you got to get her number and call right now. 
And so I did. There are only two things I remember. One was the excruciating phone call and the stunned silence on the other end of the line. And the final, oh, okay. And then the actual dance. I didn't go over to her house and pick her up. I didn't know you were supposed to do that. I showed up at the dance, hoping she would be there. I finally spotted her, but she was in that cluster of her friends, and I could not screw up the, the strength and the, the nerve to even go over and talk to her. And so for the rest of the night, I followed her around until finally, in utter defeat, I just left. Thank you for not laughing. I appreciate that. Well, I learned two valuable lessons that day. Be careful who you talk to and be careful who you listen to. Now, those aren't bad lessons, and it was relatively a low cost. I, I think I got over it just last week. <laughs> so today, I want to briefly look at several failures that Moses experienced in his life as he was setting the people of Israel free. So let's dive in. The first one is found in Exodus 4, verses 24 and 25. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, who was his wife, then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. This is a difficult passage for commentators due to the statement that Zipporah made referring to Moses as a bridegroom of blood. But all of the commentaries agree that this event revealed that Moses had not bothered to have his sons circumcised as was commanded by God to Abraham over 400 years prior. You'll find that command in Genesis 17. And it's a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. And it says there in verse 14 of Genesis 17, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, how could Moses have just forgotten? That was a very important right among his people. It was instituted by God. Now, one conclusion that we can draw from this is that Moses had probably or possibly concluded that since he was a fugitive and likely never to go back to Egypt, that you know, it really wouldn't matter that much. It may have been that Zipporah was against it. We don't know. Although, that's one of the troubling things in the passage. How did Zipporah need, know what needed to be done to solve the problem? The point of, the, of this is that it is important to raise your children and to guide their lives 
in their journey to adulthood. And Moses was sort of missing that piece. He was raised in the palace of Pharaoh, taught the ways of Egypt. And even though at 40 he rose up and killed an Egyptian that was beating a, a Hebrew slave, and then that's why he had to flee, it was likely that he may or may not have really gotten that part of the teaching uh, while he was growing up. So when his sons came along, either he didn't know what he was supposed to do or he just happened to not care. Our society today is trying to tell you that um, it's wrong to raise your children. According to the current theory, the child should be the one who decides matters for themselves without any interference from you, their parent. Now, to me, this thinking is a lot like what we read about in the book of Judges, where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And if you've read this, the book of Judges or studied it at all, you'll see that that just didn't work out very well for Israel. And I don't think it's going to work out very well for our society either. So I urge you, if you are in the process of raising children, let them know what is important. Require them to follow your guidance. They need you to help them along the way. They need you to guide their life and teach them what the scripture says. The second failure for Moses is found in Exodus 4, 27 to 31. Let's read that. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now you might be a little puzzled right now what failure I'm talking about. It's not a massive failure, but I believe that it contributed to problems later on down the line. What happened was, is this is an outfall of Moses' insistence that when God called him, that he just wasn't a good speaker. He just wasn't really capable, and really, you need to call somebody else. And God eventually said, all right, I'll let Mo Aaron be your mouthpiece. And so here we have Moses and Aaron going to the people, and Aaron speaking on behalf of Moses. Now, do you remember your grade school days when there was a spat on the playground between you and another person? Did you ever send one of your friends with a message for that person because really you just didn't want to face them head on? How about middle school? That's the time when children are turning into young men and women and, and relationships begin and sometimes end in the same week, right? Did you ever have the opportunity of being the go-between? The person that your friend sent to the girl or guy that they were going to drop and you had to give them the message? Here, Moses will now find how burdensome this arrangement really is. 
Not only was it an opportunity for miscommunication and confusion, it also put Aaron in a place where resentment could slowly grow and take hold in his life. It's interesting that later in the book of Numbers, we find exactly that. Aaron and Miriam, who is Moses' sister, so still family, both of them take exception to Moses as the leader, and it nearly causes a disaster. It's recorded for us in Numbers 12, verses 1 to 3. Numbers is a couple of books after Exodus, if you're looking it up. It says, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now, if we were going to read further on in the passage, we find that God calls all three of them to the tent of meeting, and the cloud of his presence descends on the tent. And then when the cloud is lifted, Miriam is stricken completely head to toe with leprosy. Because God says, Moses is my chosen one. And so they are in trouble. And Aaron begs Moses, pray for her. Moses does. He intercedes immediately on Miriam's behalf. And then it turns out that she has to be in shame outside the camp for seven days before God heals her. So while it was a small thing in the beginning to have Aaron as his mouthpiece, I would say that not much good came out of it. God knew what Moses was capable of from the very beginning. He knew that Moses would get over those struggles, and yet Moses kept placing blocks in the way. And God, in his graciousness, allowed them. For us then, as we think about this, let's work on building our faith. That's a decision that we can make any time that we are faced with responding to God's call. Learning to be living with uncertainty. Will I really be able to do that? Will I be able to say what needs to be said at the time? That's what I'm talking about. And we're learning as we read the scriptures and study them together that we can, but we need to trust God and, and be faithful. Now the third failure was the most disheartening. And really, it wasn't Moses' fault. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, and they deliver God's message to him. And it's found in Exodus 5, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now this message is exactly what God told them to say. You can find that in Exodus 3.18. But before we continue, I want you to just for a moment put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes. Maybe his sandals. First, two elderly Hebrews obtained an audience with the ruler of all Egypt. They don't have any gifts. They don't appear to be powerful. 
He's not really even sure of their authority. So if you are Pharaoh, are you impressed? No. And secondly, they make a demand of Pharaoh right off the bat. Let Israel go that we may hold a feast in the wilderness. Now, does that sound like a normal, reasonable request? Maybe at first it does. We're told in Exodus 12, verses 37 to 38, and the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot. About 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks, which would be sheep and goats, and herds, which would be cattle. So we need to do a little math. 600,000 men on foot. And that's not counting women and children. So to be conservative, let's add one person for each of those 600,000 men. So that makes the total 1.2 million. Then there's a mixed multitude that's reported. And once again... Let's be really conservative. I mean, how many are in a multitude? We don't know. So let's add, again, just one person of the mixed multitude to the 600,000. Now we have 1.8 million people. And that doesn't touch all the flocks and all the herds. So now let's go back to Pharaoh and ask him again. Pharaoh, we want you to let 1.8 million people take a three-day journey into the wilderness to worship our God. I looked up the population of the Seattle area, not just the city of Seattle, but the whole region, and it's like 3.8 million people. But if you took the population of Seattle, Tacoma, Bellevue, and Everett, and add them together, that totals 1,175,400. And just for fun, let's add the Stanwood area into that, which might be 25,000, and and I'm, you know, I'm guessing. Well, that brings us up to 1.2 million. We're still shy 600,000. Now, men like Pharaoh, they're used to dealing with large numbers, right? They're used to dealing with with nations and big groups. But even then, this request to Pharaoh borders on outrageous. Let all your slaves go. Okay. Let them go three days into the wilderness to worship the God of slaves? No way. And that's why Pharaoh's response is so curt and followed up with punitive action, which they did not expect. Pharaoh says in Exodus 5, 2, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so when Moses and Aaron depart, They find that Pharaoh has decided that he's going to take action. 
And so he commands the taskmasters to remove the straw that he had been providing for them when they were making bricks. And now they had to go out into the countryside and scour the countryside for their own straw. His conclusion was that they were lazy and idle, having time to listen to this kind of nonsense about going three days into the wilderness to worship. Naturally, the people are horrified. And, as badly frightened people will do, they turn on Moses. The Lord look on you and judge, it says in Exodus 5.21, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses rightly turns to the Lord and he prays. And maybe, maybe you've prayed a prayer like this. Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to your people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. The last failure that Moses had that I'd like to point out this morning is found in Exodus 12, verse 39. And it's a little bit buried there in the verse. It says, and, and, and in Exodus 12, by this time, the, all of the plagues have happened and they are being set free. And it says in 12:39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. How is that even possible? Did they just not believe that they were going to be free? Were they so used to being slaves that now they couldn't plan for themselves? C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit in his book, uh, of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Horse and His Boy. And here's what he says. But one of the worst results of being a slave and being forced to do things is that when there is no one to force you anymore, you find you have almost lost the power of forcing yourself. Now, if I told you that right now, um, the entire congregation of Cedar Home, that I wanted you to stand up and go and get your children, and we are going to walk down to Hagen's, and then we're going to come back. What would you say? What? <laughs> Am I buying? <laughs> well, that's not one of the things that I had here. <laughs> Are you crazy? Whose bright idea is that? I am not going to do such a dumb thing. You remember this last summer when I was first preaching about Moses, I asked you to remove your shoes just for a few minutes. And then I'm sure that there were some of you that went, oh, sure, no problem. And there were some of you that said, uh-uh, not going to happen. How could Moses expect to lead 
8 million. And that's just a conservative guess. How could he expect to lead 1.8 million people plus untold sheep and cattle and goats out of Egypt and into the wilderness and they made no preparations? That was no trip to Hagen's. And since we know the rest of the story, we know that they are going to be out in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if I told you next week we're going to get up and go down to Hagen's, I would suspect that the first thing that would happen is that the congregation would be a whole lot smaller. <laughs> but those of you that would dare to come would have prepared and would have food and maybe comfortable shoes and maybe rain gear if it was raining or sunscreen if it was nah. <laughs> but these people are going to be out in the wilderness for 40 years and we'll talk more about that in future future sermons well then what conclusions can we draw about our exploration of failure in the life of Moses today. The first thing I think we can draw is that results are in the hands of God. He didn't expect that, Mo that Pharaoh would take away the straw and make things worse. He was bringing the message that God wanted him to bring. And of course, the backlash was the people were angry with him. Why have you made a stink in Pharaoh's sight? But we're not responsible for the results when God has given us clear direction. We are responsible to obey and leave the results up to him. Now, how does that look in our world for our current leaders? And I'm not talking about just the church. I'm talking about leadership in general in our current world. We look for people who have demonstrated success, right? So if you get a resume, what are you going to do with the resume? You're going to make sure that all of your successes are listed. Now if you happen to have a failure in there, does the failure get listed? Probably not. What the church needs today are those who have demonstrated obedience to God and are not so focused on their results. Because the results are in God's hands, not ours. Now, I'm not trying to put that out as a cop-out. Oh, I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to try hard. I don't have to work at it. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being responsible to what God has called you to do. And it's a, it's a crucially important thing for us not to get caught up in resumes, but instead to look at the heart. The second thing I think that we learn is that it does not follow that success is always a sign of God's blessing and that failure is always a sign of his displeasure. We're told in the scripture that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. What he calls us to be is a people of faith. People who are characterized by walking by faith 
and not by sight. Again and again in his epistles, the Apostle Paul encourages us to walk by faith. Being a part of the body of Christ together, we can help each other when times get tough, when it's really hard to be faithful and walk by faith and not by sight. And so let's strive as the people of God together to come alongside when faith is hard to, to, to express and to follow, when we're so tempted to see the, the circumstances and let the circumstances drive our decisions and our behavior and our feelings. We are a people of faith, and that's where we need to put our hope and our strength and our power. And finally, we as people of Christ are set free from sin, just like the people of Israel were set free from Egypt. But we, just like them, have a lot to learn. And as a church, we are committed to growing together in our walk with Christ. We want to encourage one another. We want to strengthen one another. And so let's pray often together. That's one of the reasons why we're having a prayer time on the 18th of this month, so that we can together bring our requests before God because we believe that God answers prayer and we have seen it time and time again that he has answered the prayers of this body. I think we should play often together. And I mean that in an adult way, that we get to know one another by spending time in times of just leisure. And we try to do that every once in a while when we have a potluck. We just enjoy talking to each other, finding out what's been going on, getting to know one another better. Let's hurt together. God knows that there are plenty of opportunities to hurt. But when we hurt together, we build one another up. We build strength in our body. We find that everyone is just like us and we're just like everybody else and we can grow in that time. Let's rejoice together. There's some wonderful things that are happening in our body as well. And so we want to spend time together being excited about what God is doing in our lives. That was one of the funnest things about our time a couple of Sundays ago when there was a parade of us that were able to come up and just talk about things that God is doing here at Cedarhome. That was great because we could see God at work in individual lives. And so what I'm saying in short is let's share life together. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, you are our God and we are your people. You know our every thought. You see our victories and you see our failures. 
We pray that we would be ever mindful of your amazing love that caused you to send your son Jesus to be a ransom for many. And now we have been made your body, the church, and we pray that we would always, always walk by faith, not by sight. We pray that we would learn to trust you, that we would trust you to know our path. We pray that we would look to you when we fall or when we fail. Help us to know the joy and the peace and the confidence that comes when we trust you in all our ways and we commit ourselves anew to walk together as a church to encourage, to strengthen, to comfort, to exhort, and most of all, to love one another just as you have loved us. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.